Chapter Seven of She. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. She by H. Ryder Haggard. Chapter Seven. Ustani sings. When the kissing operation was finished, by the way, none of the young ladies offered to pet me in this fashion. "'though I saw one hovering around Job, "'to that respectable individual's evident alarm. "'The old man Bilali advanced, "'and graciously waved us into the cave, "'whither we went, followed by Ustani, "'who did not seem inclined to take the hints I gave her "'that we liked privacy. "'Before we had gone five paces, "'it struck me that the cave that we were entering "'was none of nature's handiwork, "'but, on the contrary, "'had been hollowed by the hand of man.' So far as we could judge, it appeared to be about one hundred feet in length by fifty wide, and very lofty, resembling a cathedral aisle more than anything else. From this main aisle opened passages at a distance of every twelve or fifteen feet, leading, I suppose, to smaller chambers. About fifty feet from the entrance of the cave, just where the light began to get dim, a fire was burning which threw huge shadows upon the gloomy walls around. Here Bilali halted, and asked us to be seated, saying that the people would bring us food, and accordingly we squatted ourselves down upon the rugs of skins which were spread for us, and waited. Presently the food, consisting of goat's flesh boiled, fresh milk in an earthenware pot, and boiled cobs of Indian corn, was brought by young girls. We were almost starving, and I do not think that I ever in my life before ate with such satisfaction. Indeed, before we had finished, we literally ate up everything that was set before us. When we had done, our somewhat saturnine host, Bilali, who had been watching us in perfect silence, rose and addressed us. He said that it was a wonderful thing that had happened. No man had ever known or heard of white strangers arriving in the country of the people of the rocks. Sometimes, though rarely, Black men had come here, and from them they had heard of the existence of men much whiter than themselves, who sailed on the ships in seas, but for the arrival of such there was no precedent. We had, however, been seen dragging the boat up the canal, and he told us frankly that he had at once given orders for our destruction, seeing that it was unlawful for any stranger to enter here. When a message had come from, she who must be obeyed, "'saying that our lives were to be spared, "'and that we were to be brought hither. "'Pardon me, my father,' I interrupted at this point. "'But if, as I understand, "'she who must be obeyed lives yet farther off, "'how could she have known of our approach?' "'Bilali turned, and seeing that we were alone, "'for the young lady Ustani had withdrawn "'when we had begun to speak,' "'said, with a curious little laugh, "'Are there none in your land who can see without eyes and hear without ears? "'Ask no questions. She knew.' "'I shrugged my shoulders at this, "'and he proceeded to say no further instructions had been received "'on the subject of our disposal. "'And this being so, he was about to start to interview. "'She, who must be obeyed, generally spoken of, "'for the sake of brevity as, Haya, or she, simply, 
who he gave us to understand was the queen of the Amahaga, and learn her wishes. I asked him how long he proposed to be away, and he said that by travelling hard he might be back on the fifth day, but there were many miles of marsh to cross before he came to where she was. He then said that every arrangement would be made for our comfort during his absence, and that, as he personally had taken a fancy to us, he sincerely trusted that the answer he should bring back from she would be one favourable to the continuation of our existence. But, at the same time, he did not wish to conceal from us that he thought this doubtful. As every stranger who had ever come into the country during his grandmother's life, his mother's life, and his own life, had been put to death without mercy, and in a way he would not harrow our feelings by describing. And this had been done by the order of she herself. At least he supposed that it was by her order. At any rate, she had never interfered to save them. Why, I said, but how can that be? You are an old man, and the time you talk of must reach back three men's lives. How, therefore, could she have ordered the death of anybody at the beginning of the life of your grandmother, seeing that herself she would not have been born? Again he smiled, that same faint, peculiar smile, and with a deep bow departed, without making any answer. Nor did we see him again for five days. When he had gone, we discussed the situation, which filled me with alarm. I did not at all like the accounts of this mysterious queen, she who must be obeyed, or, more shortly, she, who apparently ordered the execution of any unfortunate stranger in a fashion so unmerciful. Leo, too, was depressed about it, but consoled himself by triumphantly pointing out that this she was undoubtedly the person referred to in the writing on the potsherd and in his father's letter, in proof of which he advanced Bilali's allusions to her age and power. I was by this time too overwhelmed with the whole course of events, that I had not even the heart left to dispute a proposition so absurd. So I suggested that we should try to go out and get a bath, of which we all stood sadly in need. Accordingly, having indicated our wish to a middle-aged individual, of an unusually saturnine cast of countenance, even among this saturnine people, who appeared to be deputed to look after us now that the father of the hamlet had departed, we started in a body, having first lit our pipes. Outside the cave we found quite a crowd of people, evidently watching for our appearance. But when they saw us come out smoking, they vanished this way and that, calling out that we were great magicians. Indeed, nothing about us created so great a sensation as our tobacco smoke, not even our firearms. Begin footnote. We found tobacco growing in this country as it does in every other part of Africa, and, although they were so absolutely ignorant of its other blessed qualities, the Amahaga used it habitually in the form of snuff, and also for medicinal purposes. L. H. H. End footnote. After this we succeeded in reaching a stream that had its source in a strong ground spring, and taken our bath in peace, though some of the women, not excepting Astani, showed a decided inclination to follow us even there. By the time we had finished this most refreshing bath the sun was setting. Indeed, when we got back to the big cave it had already set. The cave itself was full of people gathered round fires, for several more had now been lighted, and eating their evening meal by the lurid light, 
and by that of various lamps which were set about or hung upon the walls. These lamps were of a rude manufacture of baked earthenware, and of all shapes, some of them graceful enough. The larger ones were formed of big red earthenware pots, filled with clarified melted fat, and having a reed wick struck through a wooden disc, which filled the top of the pot. This sort of lamp required the most constant attention to prevent its going out whenever the wick burnt down, as there were no means of turning it up. The smaller hand lamps, however, which were also made of baked clay, were fitted with wicks manufactured from the pith of a palm tree, or sometimes from the stem of a very handsome variety of fern. This kind of wick was passed through a round hole at the end of the lamp, to which a sharp piece of wood was attached wherewith to pierce and draw it up whenever it showed signs of burning low. For a while we sat down, and watched this grim people eating their evening meal, in silence as grim as themselves, till at length, getting tired of contemplating them and the huge moving shadows on the rocky walls, I suggested to our new keeper that we should like to go to bed. Without a word he rose, and, taking me politely by the hand, advanced with a lamp to one of the small passages that I had noticed opening out of the central cave. This we followed for about five paces, when it suddenly widened out into a small chamber, about eight feet square, and hewn out of the living rock. On one side of this chamber was a stone slab, about three feet from the ground, and running its entire length like a bunk in a cabin, and on this slab he intimated that I was to sleep. There was no window or air-hole to this chamber, and no furniture, and, on looking at it more closely, I came to the disturbing conclusion, in which, as I afterwards discovered, I was quite right, that it had originally served for a sepulchre for the dead, rather than a sleeping-place for the living. The slab being designed to receive the corpse of the departed. The thought made me shudder in spite of myself, but, seeing that I must sleep somewhere, I got over the feeling as best I might, and returned to the cavern to get my blanket, which had been brought up from the boat with the other things. There I met Job, who, having been inducted to a similar apartment, had flatly declined to stop in it, saying that the look of the place gave him the horrors, and that he might as well be dead and buried in his grandfather's brick grave at once, and expressed a determination of sleeping with me if I would allow him. This, of course, I was only too glad to do. The night passed very comfortably on the whole. I say on the whole, for, personally, I went through a most horrid nightmare of being buried alive, induced, no doubt, by the sepulchral nature of my surroundings. At dawn we were aroused by a loud trumpeting sound, produced, as we afterwards discovered, by a young amahaga, blowing through a hole bored in its side into a hollowed elephant tusk, which was kept for the purpose. Taking the hint, we got up, and went down to the stream to wash, after which the morning meal was served. At breakfast one of the women no longer quite young, advanced, and publicly kissed Job. I think it was in its way the most delightful thing, putting its impropriety aside for a moment, that I ever saw. Never shall I forget the respectable Job's abject terror and disgust. Job, like myself, is a bit of a misogynist, 
I fancy chiefly owing to the fact of his having been one of a family of seventeen, and the feelings expressed upon his countenance, when he realised that he was not only being embraced publicly, and without authorization on his own part, but also in the presence of his masters, who were too mixed and painful to admit of accurate description. He sprang to his feet and pushed the woman, a buxom person of about thirty, from him. "'Well, I never,' he gasped. Whereupon, probably thinking he was only coy, she embraced him again. "'Be off with you! Get away, you minx!' he shouted, waving the wooden spoon, with which he was eating his breakfast up and down before the lady's face. "'Beg your pardon, gentlemen. I am sure I hadn't encouraged her. Oh, Lord, she's coming for me again!' "'Hold her, Mr. Holly, please, hold her. I can't stand it. "'I can't, indeed. "'This has never happened to me before, gentlemen, never. "'There's nothing against my character.' "'And here he broke off, and ran as hard as he could go down the cave. "'And for once I saw the Yamahaga laugh. "'As for the woman, however, she did not laugh. "'On the contrary, she seemed to bristle with fury, "'which the mockery of the other women only served to intensify.' She stood there literally snarling and shaking with indignation. And, seeing her, I wished Job's scruples had been at Jericho, forming a shrewd guess that his admirable behaviour had endangered our throats. Nor, as the sequel shows, was I wrong. The lady, having retreated, Job returned in a great state of nervousness, and keeping his weather eye fixed upon every woman who came near him. I took an opportunity to explain to our host that Job was a married man, and had had very unhappy experiences in his domestic relations, which accounted for his presence here and his terror at the sight of women. But my remarks were received in grim silence, it being evident that our retainer's behaviour was considered as a slight to the household at large, although the women, after the manner of some of the most civilised sisters, "'made merry at the rebuff of their companion. "'After breakfast we took a walk "'and inspected the Amhago herds "'and also their cultivated lands. "'They have two breeds of cattle, "'one large and angular with no horns, "'but yielding beautiful milk, "'and the other, a red breed, "'very small and fat, excellent for meat, "'but of no value for milking purposes. "'This last breed closely resembles "'the Norfolk red pole strain.' only it has horns which generally curve forward over the head, sometimes to such an extent that they have to be cut to prevent them from growing into the bones of the skull. The goats are long-haired, and are used for eating only. At least I never saw them milked. As for the Amahaga cultivation, it is primitive in the extreme, being all done by means of a spade made of iron, for these people smelt and work iron. This spade is shaped more like the big spearhead than anything else, and has no shoulder to it on which the foot can be set. As a consequence, the labour of digging is very great. It is, however, all done by the men, the women, contrary to the habits of most savage races, being entirely exempt from manual toil. But then, as I think I have said elsewhere, among the Amahaga, the weaker sex has established its rights. At first we were much puzzled as to the origin and constitution of this extraordinary race. 
points upon which they were singularly uncommunicative. As the time went on, for the next four days passed without any striking event, we learnt something from Leo's lady friend Ustani, who, by the way, stuck to that young gentleman like his own shadow. As to origin, they had none, at least so far as she was aware. There were, however, she informed us, mounds of masonry and many pillars, near the place where she lived, which were called Kor, and which the wise said had once been houses wherein men lived, and it was suggested that they were descended from these men. No one, however, dared to go near these great ruins, because they were haunted. They only looked on them from a distance. Other similar ruins were to be seen, she had heard, in various parts of the country. That is, wherever one of the mountains rose above the level of the swamp. Also, the caves in which they lived had been hollowed out of the rocks by men, perhaps the same who built the cities. They themselves had no written laws, only custom, which was, however, quite as binding as law. If any man offended against the custom, he was put to death by order of the father of the household. I asked how he was put to death, and she only smiled and said that I might see one day soon. They had a queen, however. She was their queen, but she was very rarely seen, perhaps once in two or three years, when she came forth to pass sentence on some offenders, and when seen was muffed up in a big cloak, so that nobody could look upon her face. Those who waited upon her were deaf and dumb, and therefore could tell no tales. But it was reported that she was lovely as no other woman was lovely, or ever had been. It was rumoured also that she was immortal, and had power over all things. But she, Astani, could say nothing of all that. What she believed was that the Queen chose a husband from time to time, and as soon as a female child was born... This husband, who was never again seen, was put to death. Then the female child grew up, and took the place of the queen when its mother died, and had been buried in the great caves. But of these matters none could speak with certainty. Only she was obeyed throughout the length and breadth of the land, and to question her command was instant death. She kept a guard, but had no regular army, and to disobey her was to die. I asked what size the land was, and how many people lived in it. She answered that there were ten households, like this that she knew of, including the big household where the queen was, that all the households lived in caves, in places resembling this stretch of raised country, dotted about in a vast extent of swamp, which was only to be threaded by secret paths. Often the households made war on each other, until she sent word that it was to stop, and then they instantly ceased. That, and the fever which they caught in crossing the swamps, prevented their numbers from increasing too much. They had no connection with any other race, indeed none lived near them, or were able to thread the vast swamps. Once an army from the direction of the great river, presumably the Zambezi, had attempted to attack them, but they got lost in the marshes, and at night, seeing the great balls of fire that moved about there, tried to come to them, thinking that they marked the enemy camp, and half of them were drowned. 
As for the rest, they soon died of fever and starvation, not a blow being struck at them. The marshes, she told us, were absolutely impassable, except to those who knew the paths. Adding, what I could well believe, that we should never have reached this place where we were then, had we not been brought thither. These and many other things we learnt from Astani, during the four days' pause before our real adventures began, and, as may be imagined, they gave us considerable cause for thought. The whole thing was exceedingly remarkable, almost incredibly so, indeed, and the oddest part of it was that so far it did more or less correspond to the ancient writings on the sherd. And now it appeared that there was a mysterious queen clothed by rumour with dread and wonderful attributes, and commonly known by the impersonal, but, to my mind, rather awesome title of she. Altogether, I could not make it out, nor could Leo, though, of course, he was exceedingly triumphant over me, because I had persistently mocked at the whole thing. As for Job, he had long since abandoned any attempt to call his reason his own, and left it to drift upon the sea of circumstance. Mohammed, the Arab, who was, by the way, treated civilly indeed, but with chilling contempt by the Amahaga, was, I discovered, in a great fright, though I could not quite make out what he was frightened about. He would sit crouched up in a corner of the cave all day long, calling upon Allah and the Prophet to protect him. When I pressed him about it, he said that he was afraid because these people were not men or women at all, but devils, and that this was an enchanted land. And, upon my word, once or twice since then I have been inclined to agree with him. And so time went on, till the night of the fourth day after Bilali had left, when something happened. We three, and Ustani, were sitting round a fire in the cave just before bedtime, when suddenly the woman, who had been brooding in silence, rose, and laid her hand upon Leo's golden curls, and addressed him. Even now, when I shut my eyes, I can see her proud, imperial form, clothed alternatively in dense shadow, and the red flickering of the fire. As she stood, the wild centre of as weird a scene as I ever witnessed, and delivered herself of the burden of her thoughts and forebodings, in a kind of rhythmical speech that ran something as follows. Thou art my chosen. I have waited for thee from the beginning. Thou art very beautiful. Who hath hair like unto thee, or skin so white? Who hath so strong an arm? Who is so much a man? Thine eyes are the sky, and the light in them is the stars. Thou art perfect and of happy face, and my heart turned itself towards thee. I, when mine eyes fell upon thee, I did desire thee, then did I take thee to me, O oh, thou beloved, and hold thee fast, lest harm should come unto thee. I, I did cover thine head with mine hair, lest the sun should strike it. And altogether was I thine, and thou wast altogether mine. And so it went for a little space, till time was in labour with an evil day. And then what befell on that day, alas, my beloved, I know not. But I, I saw thee no more, I... I was lost in the blackness, and she who is stronger did take thee, I, she who is fairer than Astani. Yet didst thou turn and call upon me, and let thine eyes wander in the darkness. But nevertheless, she prevailed by beauty, 
and led thee down horrible places, and then, ah, then my beloved. Here this extraordinary woman broke off her speech, or chant, which was so much musical gibberish to us, for all that we understood of what she was talking about, and seemed to fix her flashing eyes upon the deep shadow before her. Then, in a moment, they acquired a vacant, terrified stare, as though they were striving to realise some half-seen horror. She lifted a hand from Leo's head and pointed into the darkness. We all looked and could see nothing, but she saw something, or thought she did, and something evidently that affected even her iron nerves, for, without another sound, down she fell senseless between us. Leo, who was growing really attached to this remarkable young person, was in a great state of alarm and distress, and I, to be perfectly candid, was in a condition not far removed from superstitious fear. The whole scene was an uncanny one. Presently, however, she recovered, and sat up with an extraordinary convulsive shudder. "'What didst thou mean, Astani?' asked Leo, who, thanks to years of tuition, spoke Arabic very prettily. "'Nay, my chosen,' she answered with a little forced laugh. "'I did but sing unto thee after the fashion of my people. "'Surely I meant nothing. "'Now could I speak of that which is not yet?' "'And what did thou see, Astani? I asked, looking her sharply in the face. "'Nay,' she answered, "'I saw not. "'Ask me not what I saw. "'Why should I fright ye?' And then, turning to Leo, with a look of the most utter tenderness that I ever saw upon the face of a woman, civilised or savage, she took his head between her hands, and kissed him on the forehead as a mother might. "'When I am gone from thee, my chosen,' she said, "'when at night thou stretches out thine hand and canst not find me, then should thou think at times of me, for of a truth I love thee well, though I be not fit to wash thy feet.' And now let us love, and take that which is given us, and be happy. For in the grave there is no love, and no warmth, nor any touching of the lips. Nothing perchance, or perchance but bitter memories of what might have been. Tonight the hours are our own. How know we to whom they shall belong to-morrow? End of chapter 7